Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Anyone who's spent any time traveling through Queensland has more than likely been through Childers. Blink and you might miss it, but there's no way around it. Its main street is the National Highway, which runs up and down the east coast of Australia. And with plenty of places to pull over, it's a popular hub to refuel and grab a coffee and a sandwich before resuming the road trip. Childers is a beautiful town, you know, like it's a standout town along the highway, really. It's got that heritage architecture. And as I say, people are extremely extremely proud of the community. It's an old, an older town. It looks like an older town. It's well preserved. It's clean. It, it just looks like a nice place. And it is a nice place. Uh, and the people reflected what the town showed. That's Wayne Hydrick. For 35 years, he and his wife, Cathy, ran the local paper, the Isis Town and Country. It was produced on a weekly basis and uh, a lot of people used to laugh and say, oh, you've got a circulation of uh, 1,600 copies. You know, I said it was 1,600 paid copies, thank you very much. <laughs> but, uh, um, but the, you know, a loyal readership and people who were immensely community proud. Lots of things were happening in the community. The paper was a Childers institution and the Hydricks know the town's history as well as anyone. They moved to the area in 1981 and quickly worked out how the community ticked. Obviously, the, um, the dynamics have changed over the years, but in 1981, um, you had a core of people who were long-time business people in the town, you know, running the local su- uh, supermarkets, the, the local solicitors, um, the cane growers, uh, accountants, you know, professional people who were um, who were doing a great job. Childers was and has always been a vibrant and a fairly wealthy town. It boasts four banks, which a lot of small communities the size of Childers um, would uh, give their right arms to have. You know, like it, the wealth that was in the town was was obvious. Um, a lot of people had made a lot of money out of farming, and uh, the banks made sure that they um, they had a strong presence in the community. But the people themselves were easygoing. Um, just your genuine country locals, but fiercely loyal. And um, I found that they became extremely loyal to our newspaper. And that meant they had to quickly brush up on their local history, learning its backstory and about its famous figures. Guys like William Forster, a polarising livestock farmer who married the daughter of legendary explorer Gregory Blacksland and ended up being the fourth Premier of New South Wales. There was Dame Annabel Rankin, the first lady to be made a federal government minister, Jack Pizzi, who was the 29th Premier of Queensland, and Sir William Alfred Brand, a long-serving state and federal politician who was knighted for his services to the sugarcane industry. 
but perhaps one man's legacy trumps them all. Reg Montgomery was a two-time duck to the local high school and by the time he was in his mid-twenties he was leading local research into sugarcane crops, in particular how to control pests without using chemicals and insecticides. So in 1935 he headed to Hawaii and returned with what he considered the solution. No, definitely not longboards, but 102 cane toads. 85 years on, the cane beetle problem still exists, and the best guess is there's now more than 200 million cane toads grossing out Queenslanders. One of the most noticeable things about Childers are the buildings which line the main street. There's a similarity and there's a reason for that. The Great Fire of 1902 took out a big chunk of the street. 22 businesses were destroyed and needed to be rebuilt. Among them, the Palace Hotel, owned by Malcolm Redmond. It was added to the Queensland Heritage Register in 1992 and converted to a backpacker hostel, which opened for business a year later. By mid-2000, the Palace was a thriving business and the heartbeat of a small highway town. It was earning a strong reputation as a handy short to long-term stopover for the backpacking community from international guests to young adventure-seeking Australians like Sarah Marnie. I think I just picked up a magazine and saw that there was working, you know, hostels that catered for people who wanted to do fruit picking and a lot of them had transport and could find new work. So I thought, oh, well, that'll do. And that's kind of how it was for most. Each year, hundreds of backpackers from all over the world would head to Childers to pick and pack fruit and vegetables to earn a few dollars to finance their future travel plans. There were plenty of farms and plenty of work if you were prepared to roll up your sleeves. And the palace is where they'd stay. We were a farming community made up of cane farms, vegetable farms, and the odd tree crop farm was coming into prominence at the time. We were a town of uh, a large number of backpackers that had come to our community to pick the uh, small crops that were growing in in the community as a whole, and they were well accepted in our community at that time. Sarah Marnie was 17, a strong, independent, by her own admission, free spirit, still working out what she wanted to do with her life. She'd applied for jobs and courses, and while she waited to hear back, decided to leave her Brisbane home and head for the farms in Childers. She arrived on the 21st of June and immediately made a crucial decision. I remember getting there, having a look around the hostel, going in every single sort of common area that you could, meeting the roommates and, um, yeah, I'm pretty, you know, I get on pretty well with people from the get-go, so I just remember chatting to lots of people and I was really interested in how people lived and hearing their stories. Everywhere I go, everywhere I've always gone, ever since I was young, I've always looked around and I've always had in the back of my mind, always know your exits, always know where you are. And, you know, I've got a really good sense of direction. I've got a really good internal GPS and I always know where I am. We'll come back to that. But first, Sarah had work to do. She was assigned to a local zucchini farm and headed off for day one on the job. And it didn't quite go to plan. Got through the rest of the day and they said, don't come back tomorrow. I said, don't worry, I won't. So that was it. Sacked on her first day of this new adventure. I didn't care. I thought I'd just get some other job. I thought anything was better than the zucchinis because they give you a rash and you're bending over all day. 
I thought avocados, tomatoes, anything else. So she boarded the bus with the rest of the crew and headed home. She spent some time chatting with her roommates. It was a room of three. Sarah was sharing with 23-year-olds Yoli van de Velden from the Netherlands and Wee Kyung Lee from Korea. Yoli sort of hung out more with, with the Dutch people. Lee being from South Korea, um, when I met her, we just instantly got on. I thought it was so amazing because she, she didn't know how to swim. So I was like, right, I'm going to take you to the public pool and I'm going to teach you swimming. So she was already telling everyone, oh, Sarah's going to teach me swimming and all the rest of it. So, yeah, you know, I can go and make friends instantly if I want to. And Lee and I, we, we just got on instantly, us girls. The long day on the zucchini farm had taken its toll. They were in bed by nine. Well, I just woke up to the sound of glass breaking and some weird popping noises. And I thought someone, I don't know, was trashing the place downstairs. It sounded like it was coming from downstairs. So I just thought we had vandals or someone was having a punch on in the kitchen or I didn't know what was happening. And then I remember smelling like a burning smell. And then um, I remembered someone started screaming out fire. That was just after midnight, the sound of glass breaking, an assumption of vandalism. You'll hear that a bit from survivors throughout this podcast. And it helps to point out that at first, it didn't seem like anything to be too concerned about. I just thought it was a bit odd that there was no alarms or anything. I thought, oh, it can't be that bad. You know, there's no alarms. But I thought it is an awful burning smell. As the noise escalated, Sarah decided something needed to be done, and quickly. They're sleeping. They're still asleep. Um, and so I'm on a triple bunk, and I've climbed off the triple bunk and woken them up. And then I've tried to turn the light on, and there's no electricity, there's no power. And you couldn't see, because we were in an internal room, so there's no windows to the outside world. So um, it's pitch black. You can't see your hand in front of your face. There is no colour. And um, I just said, well, you know, we've got to get out. Apparently there's a fire. Let's go. The door was sunk on its hinges. So you had to lift it and open it. So I actually was holding on to Lee. Um, and Yoli, I just heard her shuffling about. But I grabbed Lee. And... Um, I had to let go of her to open the door. So, yeah. And then as soon as I opened the door, you couldn't breathe. It was really bad in there. And I remembered taking a breath in because you don't think you're going to open a door and walk into that thicker smoke. So, um, yeah, I just remember taking a breath in and it was just, you know, that toxic smoke. And I just thought, drop to the ground, put one hand on the wall and crawl and that was that. Now, at this point, the way Sarah tells it 20 years on, the exit plan is all running to script. But this is where things go horribly wrong, and sitting across from her, listening to her recount what happened, it sends a shiver down my spine. So I crawled, and I thought Lee and Yoli were behind me because I heard someone behind me, and I was like, oh, good, we're all out, that's great. So I head for the um, staircase, which is actually where the fire is. And, um, and I went round a corner 
to the atrium and yeah put my hand out in front of me and that all got burnt because the fire you know it would have been the heat radiating up from the fire and um yeah so I did a Yui <laughs> and I'd been in there for a while like you know at this stage I've taken a breath of smoke I'm can't breathe you're holding your breath the whole time and it sort of draws on me that I actually need to breathe so I, I try and breathe and you know you can't so I actually remember going to sleep just going I'll just go to sleep and I almost went through this euphoria like well death's all right you just go to sleep and it seemed like a real peaceful little option at that time I was literally just going to sleep on the floor and I don't know how long it is things seem like they go on forever but they really go on probably for very a short amount of time Two decades on, Sarah still has no idea how long that sleep lasted. It could have been seconds, it could have been minutes. Nor can she explain what happened next. But then I remember thinking um, about my parents at my funeral and I just had this weird dream of how upset everyone would be. So I thought, oh, I better get out of here. So I pushed myself up and I remember just my brain just said, you're not going to die today, let's go. And I got a map in my head of the configuration of the building and I just turned into like a robot. I was like, right, five paces this way, turn right, a few paces this way, turn there. And I remember thinking I can either bust out through the door onto the balcony or if if that's locked, because I knew sometimes it was locked and I couldn't find it, I thought maybe I could bust in through this person's room and out a window. So I had two plans. And on the way I felt someone run into me so I thought oh good that's Lee so I was like right wrong way come with me I know where I'm going I've got this map in my head I can't see a thing but I know where I'm going and I'll get there so anyway I bust out onto the balcony and then when I turn around I don't know who the person is who I've sort of taken with me and I thought where's Lee but at that stage there was no going back To this day, Sarah still doesn't know who it was that she helped guide out of the palace. They were the last two to be helped down from the roof of the building next door by fireman Hayden Whitaker, who we heard from in episode one. I didn't realise what I looked like, but the ambulance saw me and she just pointed at me and she's like, this woman's a priority. And I, I thought, why am I a priority? But I looked down and I was actually black. I was just pitch black, covered in smoke and soot. She was sent straight to the hospital for treatment. Her hand severely burnt. The air temperature was so hot coming from that staircase that it burnt my hand. It's like when you have a bonfire and you cook your food above the bonfire because that's where it's hot and that's where it cooks. So that's literally what it was like. Sarah thinks about Two hours have elapsed by the time she makes her way back to the palace. She's desperate to return, anxious to find Yoli and Lee. But when she gets there, the doors have been opened at the Childers Hotel across the road and police are already starting to take a roll call. Yep, so I just said, look, I don't know where either of my roommates are. I haven't seen them. You know, I've come out, I've looked for them, I can't see them. 
And there's other people from the Netherlands who were friends with Yoli and they're going, have you seen Yoli? What happened to her? Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I don't know. I've got no idea. And, the, and then someone else asked me about Lee and I said, well, I thought she was with me, but, you know, I haven't seen her since. So, yeah. So everyone's trying to figure out what happened and where everyone is and all the rest of it. I think you sort of have a bit of hope for the first few hours and you think maybe I just maybe they're just somewhere else I mean you know sort of wasn't like we were all in one big room together everyone was scattered so you sort of think well maybe they're somewhere else but pretty much like when I relayed it back in my head and thought oh I don't think anyone got out of that building after me and I didn't see Lee on the roof or Yoli and the fire was coming from the staircase, so the way I got out was the only way out. Uh, yeah, you pretty much know. I knew, I knew that night. I knew that night. I remember saying to someone, I think they're gone. I knew as soon as I got out there, people had died. So, um, you know, amongst all the, amongst the blindness of it, with all the darkness, you still hear voices or you hear screaming or you hear cries for help and whatnot so you hear those sort of noises you can hear things yeah but you've got no where they are who knows and see it's not like you're going to be screaming for long with smoke inhalation you scream once you get a lung full of air that's it you don't talk after that you can't yeah so it all goes pretty quiet so yeah i knew there was people dead straight away Sadly, as the hours passed and night turned into day, their worst fears were becoming a more likely reality. Yoli and Lee would later be confirmed as two of the 15 victims of the fire. As you'll hear later in this podcast, in the room next to theirs, room seven, all 10 people died. I'm the only one that got out of my whole section of the building. You know, it's an awful thing that happened and... At the end of the day, you feel awful for the people who died, their families and their friends and their loved ones. You know, it's, um, yeah. <laughs> who knows why I got out, you know. Has it been a turning point in your life in any way where you've thought, gee, I might have got given a second chance here? No. You never thought of it that way? No. Nah, look, I'm not religious. Um, and, you know, there's all these religious people out there who are like, oh, you know, I reckon God got you out. Well, let me tell you, God was not in that building that night. And God doesn't go, well, I'm, I don't know God. I don't think God exists. But if there is a God who goes, I'll save this one and kill the others, well, he's an asshole and I'm not going to worship him anyway. That's how I look at it. And, you know, it's not a blessing to anyone else but me and my family that I got out. Sarah concedes it's taken time to come to terms with what happened that night in Childers. The years immediately after weren't easy. It didn't stop at travelling. She went backpacking across the world, mostly alone. At one point, she bought a horse and trekked solo through the mountains of Kyrgyzstan. She chose isolation over company, silence over conversation when it came to the fire itself. There's no template for dealing with what she went through, but 20 years has definitely landed her in a much better place. 
Do you count yourself lucky? Oh, yeah, definitely lucky. Yeah. Maybe I could hold my breath a bit better. Maybe I was a bit fitter. Maybe it's because of my, you know, my internal map. Maybe it's because I've always had a strong survival sense. Maybe it's because I've always checked out my surrounds because maybe I've always been a little sceptical of humans as a species. So, yeah, but definitely, you certainly can use a bit of luck some days as well. That's for sure. <laughs> this podcast has been written and produced by me, Paul Cochran, to honour the victims, the survivors and the incredible people who played a part in the story of the Childers Backpacker Fire in June 2000. Please, if you're anywhere near Childers, about 300 kilometres north of Queensland's capital, Brisbane, pop into the memorial to the 15 victims and pay your respects. Be sure to tell your friends and family about this podcast and keep listening to hear more stories from those involved in this major chapter in Australia's history. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.